for all your love of truth, you force yourself so long, so persistently, and with such hypnotic rigidity to have a false, namely stoic view of nature that you can no longer see it in any other way. And some abysmal piece of arrogance finally gives you the madhouse hope that because you know how to tyrannize yourself, stoicism is self-tyranny, nature lets itself be tyrannized as well. So, you know, classic Nietzsche, that's all over the place and that's always aggressive. But he does have some interesting challenges here. Welcome to Stoic Conversations. In this podcast, Michael Tremblay and I discuss the theory and practice of Stoicism. Each week, we'll share two conversations, one between the two of us, and another will be an in-depth conversation with an expert. In this conversation, Michael and I talk about the German philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche. We talk about some key similarities between his philosophy and Stoicism, and we discuss two challenges he has for the philosophy. It was a fun conversation. I always enjoy reading or talking about Nietzsche because he is a philosopher who forces you to clarify what you believe and what you value. Before we jump into the conversation, I should say that we just launched a newsletter. Sign up at stoaletter.com. If you reply to the welcome email with the words podcast or Stoa conversations within the next week, we will share a PDF of an unreleased course that Michael and I have put together on managing negative emotions. And without any other words of introduction, here is our conversation on Nietzsche. Welcome to another Stoa conversation. My name is Caleb Ontiveros. And I'm Michael Tremblay. And we are going to be talking about Frederick Nietzsche, the German philosopher, and some of his disagreements, challenges to Stoicism, as well as some of the similarities with his philosophy. Yeah, it's an exciting topic. He's definitely a controversial figure. Some people really like Nietzsche. Some people don't like Nietzsche. Some people bring in kind of the story of his life into his philosophy. Some people look at his life, his philosophy on its own. So interested for this talk and to, to learn a bit about what he thinks about the Stoics. Yeah, yeah. So I'll, I'll start by just saying a little bit about who Nietzsche is, why he's important, and then we can hop into some of the basics of his philosophy and then jump into the meat of the conversation, if you will, which is going to be the two initial similarities to challenges that Nietzsche poses to Stoicism. And I should also say that we have two Nietzsche experts coming on with, we have Nate Anderson, who is writing about Nietzsche and how Nietzschean views can improve our relationship with technology, social media, the internet in particular. And then we also have a fellow by the name of Dave Jilk, entrepreneur and investor type who wrote a book called The Entrepreneur's Nietzsche, which takes thoughts from Nietzsche and of course applies it to business. So I thought it'd be useful to, before we release those conversations, give a little bit more background on Nietzsche and also have y'all hear some of what we think about some of his challenges to stoicism. But first, you know, who was Nietzsche? At the very basics, he was a classicist, a philosopher in the 19th century, mid-19th century, a German fellow. He was well-read in the ancient Greek texts. He was a classicist, after all, what they called a philologist back in those days. He was a big fan of Plutarch, 
the ancient biographer. I spoke with Alex Petkas on Plutarch, and he thought that Plutarch's characters were exceptionally admirable in some ways. Um, and then he also knew Epictetus quite well. He had a, a very heavily marked up copy of some of Epictetus's works. So that's who he was. And, you know, why is he important? Well, he's influenced many different thinkers. He has a very noteworthy aphoristic style. So you've probably heard a few of his lines, things like, without music, life would be a mistake. What does not kill you makes you stronger. Beware that when fighting monsters, you yourself do not become a monster. Or when you gaze long into the abyss, the abyss gazes also into you. So like the Stoics, he also has a talent with aphoristic, almost laconic writing at times. But I think he's most interesting because he is a challenging thinker. He's someone who is very good at challenging a variety of different schools of philosophy, a variety of different ways of life and forces you to think seriously about your assumptions and is someone who is not a systematic thinker. So you need to do some work to think with him as it is. So that's a, that's a quick intro. Do you want to say anything by way of intro to Nietzsche, Michael? No, I, mean, I don't know much about Nietzsche. I was going to say what comes with being a good aphoristic writer is you probably also get misquoted a lot, or you probably also get people taking you out of context a lot. So in that case, it's kind of worthwhile to dig into it a bit deeper. You know, another one that you didn't mention that I was thinking is the idea that God is dead. It's God is dead and, and we killed him or something like that that Nietzsche mm -hmm. says. So all of these great, you know, these great lines, great ideas, but I'm interested in kind of understanding the thinking that that goes behind those and builds those up. When I think of Nietzsche as, as a thinker, I think of him as, I don't know if reactionary is the right word, but I would say brave. So I think it's, I think I didn't know that he was a classicist that you mentioned. So I think it's kind of funny because when I think of him, I think of him as, as kind of rejecting classics, kind of rejecting what's come before and moving to something new. So that's kind of ironic that that was built on this foundation of actually like a, of being respecting and well-read in what came before. But that's, that, that's all I have to say. I'm interested to, to hear more from you. Yeah, I should say that I'm not a Nietzsche expert either, but I've read a significant number of his works. And I think I first read a book called Twilight of the Idols when I was in high school. And since then, I've kept up my interest in Nietzsche, which I think that's actually too early of a time to read Nietzsche on reflection in high school. <laughs> He's a, yeah, I wouldn't recommend that high schoolers read Nietzsche in general. We all make mistakes in high school. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> you, it was reading Nietzsche. Yeah, that wasn't my only mistake, but yeah. Yeah, so very briefly, we'll cover some of the main lines in his philosophy, or at least some things that I'll, I'll pick out, and then we'll talk about some similarities and differences. And of course, we won't be able to say too much about what Nietzsche's philosophy is. And there's always the issue that there are different Nietzsche's. I think as with many thinkers, they change their mind over time, and their writing might not be entirely clear. And it's certainly the case that Nietzsche fits both of those criteria. His writing is provocative, not especially crisp, and he changed his mind significantly throughout, throughout his life. So there are, there are different Nietzsche's. But several themes that I would pick out is, first, he's not religious by any means. He didn't like Christianity. He thought Christianity was net negative for the world. And that's part of this rejection of what came before that Michael touched on and he thought that what needed to happen was a reevaluation of all values. That's one big thing, not religious. He also didn't believe in, say, any over 
overarching purpose to the world. So he wasn't like the ancient Stoics who thought that the Logos impermeated the universe and sort of gave everything a essential nature. A second big theme from Nietzsche is that he is an early psychologist. So one of his methodologies is not so much to look at the arguments for and against different beliefs, but come up with accounts that explain why we believe the things we do and sort of undercut our beliefs in a way that influenced a lot of later thinkers. So a quick example of this is we are much more egalitarian than we used to be in the past. Many people in Nietzsche's time were more egalitarian as well. And one line on that is that people came to some amount of moral progress. We learned over time that people were equal and had these basic set of political rights or equally deserving of respect and so on. But Nietzsche, he looks at this belief and he says, you know, what explains this? And instead of thinking about this from the terms of arguments, he has a story about how people come to believe this sort of thing because of the rise of Christianity. And in particular, although this is a bit crude, Christianity was a way for the weak to bully the strong. And part of that involves a creed of egalitarianism. So I think that's a co very common method that Nietzsche uses in his writing is explaining both why specific individuals believe things, as we'll see later in the Stoics, but also general, general cultural trends as well. A third thing I want to shout out is that Nietzsche is certainly an elitist. He thinks the best forms of life are only going to be realized by a few people. And in a real sense, those people are superior to others. So he's not an egalitarian by any means. He thought that a handful of artists, statesmen were truly great people and the vast majority of other people were weak and envious of them. Uh, so that's certainly a theme that can't be avoided in, in Nietzsche's thought, although it can be, it can be certainly misused and has been misused throughout history. And then the last thing I wanted to shout out is that there's an approach to enthusiastically say yes to life. So although Nietzsche was an elitist, he thought that the best people are the sorts of people who are able to not just tolerate whatever happens, but be the kind of person who loves either their decisions or what happens that is outside of their control. They're the sort of person who would be happy to repeat their life really many times because they are happy with the decisions they made and not just at peace, but sort of willingly accept whatever else occurred. So those are, those are four things I want to say about Nietzsche. One, not religious. It's very important to rejects, rejects God. He has a sort of psychologizing type approach. He's an elitist. And then finally, there's a sort of enthusiasm that he thinks is important to the life that is best, best lived. What do you have to say about what that, Michael? Yeah, no, I thought that was really well put. A good summary. I mean, the, the, the part that appeals to me, or I, I always find interesting is this, I mean, you refer to it as psychologizing, but I, this way of kind of, you can almost see this also in like evolutionary biology or evolutionary psychology in this common context where people I mean, in today's society and also in, in folk psychology. So people who are perhaps not professional psychologists, but are trying to explain behavior, there can be this attempt to kind of, well, let's tell a story about the way that evolution 
or our biology might inform this kind of interaction or this kind of this kind of behavior. You know, maybe you know, dating works a certain way, attraction works a certain way, or emotions work a certain way, and there's always this kind of grounding in evolution or social rules work a certain way. And I kind of, I, I see that Nietzsche kind of doing the same thing, but but with the morality aspect, right? So you, you did that. You were referencing. I think this is from Beyond Good and Evil, the idea that, you know, Christians celebrate charity or they celebrate compassion towards the weak or they celebrate, you know, patience or or the capacity, humility or these kind of, and, and Nietzsche's argument being that instead of these things being, you know, objective goods that they've inferred from, from God, these, these serve a kind of function to the group, which is that a bunch of weak people, and and I think his way of talking about it, get together and then celebrate the kinds of behaviors or traits that benefit weak people. And I'm not sure I believe that, but I think it's kind of a thin way to approach morality. I know Hume does the same thing. And I've always been a fan of, of Hume when he's when he's done that. I think it's like a a a a worthwhile alternative direction to come at these moral judgments from that that can make us question our ethical beliefs. The fancy word for this is genealogy so nietzsche has uh, quite often a genealogical method so in his works like the genealogy of um morals he basically is coming up with a psychology of why we believe what we do but the two similarities i want to shout out are more fati and self-sufficiency so those are two similarities with stoicism and then the two differences that we can chat about today are Nietzsche's views on suffering and his views about nature, and that's nature with a capital N. And there is, of course, a very large difference between Nietzsche's account of morality and the Stoics. That's probably a conversation, that's a whole podcast-length episode, so we can come to that later, probably. Let us know if you're interested in that conversation, and we'll bump it up in the queue. Uh, But these are the four I want to cover here. So let's do a more Fati first. So more fati, that's Latin for loving fate. And I'll just read out a quick line from Nietzsche, which is the following. My formula for what is great in mankind is amor fati, not to wish for anything other than that which is, whether behind, ahead, or for all eternity, not just to put up with the inevitable, much less to hide it from oneself. For all idealism is lying to oneself in the face of the necessary but to love it. So this is this idea, I think, which is similar to ideas like the dichotomy of control in Stoicism, similar to even ancient ideas of providence, and involves not just tolerating what happens, but embracing whatever happens. And that includes both what is in your control and what is outside. So I think that's a a real similarity that many people have noticed between Nietzsche and the Stoics and his framing on this is useful and I think inspiring. I like his picture of you know the kind of person who could happily live their life over and over again because they are happy in a deep sense with the way things are and the way the way they are as an ideal. Yeah, that's the idea of that's called eternal recurrence, right? Is that how Nietzsche refers to that? Right. Yeah. Coming back and living it again and again. It makes me think when you were talking about that about the dichotomy of control so often gets framed, even by myself, as this idea of, well, focus what's on your control, focus what's up to you, value what's up to you. And 
this amor fati, which is an important part of Stoicism, but you know Nietzsche is really bringing it out here. It's not just like focus on yourself and ignore the rest. It is this focus on yourself and love the rest. Move to this kind of not just this acceptance or this endurance or this capacity to persevere through the things that aren't up to you, but this actual embrace and and love of it. And I think that's that's a pretty powerful way to approach the dichotomy of control, which I think is you know, probably a bit more of an advanced technique. What do you find inspiring about it? Why, why does that passage connect with you? Well, I think there's the idea of eternal recurrence that is use motivating just as an ideal to achieve, to live the life that you'd be happy to live over and over again. That I find that both a daunting prospect, but also an, an inspiring one. And I think also this shift from not just acceptance to willing acceptance is a powerful one and a useful reframing on things. So the Stoics were always big on as a psychological technique, as reframing whatever happens. And one way to do that is to imagine yourself not just accepting things in the sense of tolerating them, but willingly accepting them. So an example of that in practice is there is a technique where people try to hold their breath, a meditative technique. You hold your breath for some amount of period of time and you watch what happens. And of course, it becomes quite uncomfortable. And at that stage, you can just sort of observe those uncomfortable feelings, or you could imagine yourself generating those uncomfortable feelings that are emerging and willing them into existence in a way. And I think that's a useful reframing for many different kinds of experiences is this idea that, look, you chose to take this path. You're not just willing the act of trying to hold your breath initially, but also these results, whatever else occurs. So I, I love that. I love that reframing. And what was, not to, not to put you on the spot as the, the Nietzsche expert, but what was his argument for, because Stoicism this loving of fate is grounded in this idea of loving nature. What is kind of Nietzsche's play here? Is he just that he finds these people that do this very impressive? Or does he have some sort of argument for this? Or like, yeah, I'm trying to think what's, what's, because, because then if you ask a normal person, the person will say, well, some things about Nate, some things are good, some things are bad. I hate when bad things happen and I like when good things happen and I love the good stuff and I don't like the bad stuff. And he's kind of, he's kind of, rejecting that common sense view. And I'm just wondering what the argument for that could be if you don't have this stoic picture. Yeah, let's. Uh, I think we can sort of get to that answer with another similarity, which is both Stoics and Nietzsche agree on this idea of self-sufficiency. And we'll also get to it when you chat about suffering a little bit. But that's, yeah, that's a great question. So another similarity with Stoicism and Nietzsche is that we have the capacity to be an inner citadel, to use the French philosopher Pierre Hadot's words, where the Stoic sage, they are someone who is solely responsible for what is up to them. They act perfectly virtuous, and so long as they do those things, they are self-sufficient. They can be put in any situation and live well. So that's the so the Stoic idea of self-sufficiency is that the individual does not depend on anything external for living well. 
the Stoic phrase, I think this was, was Aristotle brought this up first, was happy on the rack, meaning literally happy on the, on the torture rack, as just an example of the capacity for self-sufficiency. The Stoics believed that. They believed the sage was happy even while being tortured. They were willing to bite the bullet on that. But- yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I think what where Nietzsche agrees is that the one can live well through overcoming suffering and that one doesn't need to depend on living a comfortable existence or even a secure existence in order to live well. And he positively looks down on people who are not able to handle the lot they've been given, even if the lot is quite bad. So he at least agrees with the Stoics that we don't need a lot to live well and things like how much suffering we experience in a life can, if approached correctly, add to life well-lived, not merely detract from it. Though he does take, of course, a, he has a much more sort of, how would you say it? I think the Stoics, they're a little bit more concerned about the life of the sage living virtuously, and he is more concerned with someone overcoming their suffering and doing something excellent, whether that is the artist or the statesman or, or what have you, that people who can live well are in a serious sense self-sufficient and they don't need anyone to help them live well or not dependent on others. Practice Stoicism with Stoa. Stoa combines the ancient philosophy of Stoicism with meditation in a practical meditation app. It includes hundreds of hours of exercises, lessons, and conversations to help you live a happier life. Find it available for a free download in the Play Store and App Store. Yeah, so I really like the idea of self-sufficiency. I think that's a great similarity. I think it's also one of the main appeals of Stoicism to me. But at the start, you were mentioning how Nietzsche is not egalitarian. Some people are better than others. But self-sufficiency to me, at least I associate with the key concept of Stoic egalitarianism, which is the idea that we all have the capacity to a good life because a good life is a self-sufficient thing. It's a thing we can internally generate. Is Nietzsche's view here that some, the good life is self-sufficient, but some people just can't ever get there because they're not excellent enough? They're not born excellent? Where, where does this lack of egalitarianism, where does this some people are better than others come from if the good life is self-sufficient? And it doesn't require you to be born into wealth or something like this. Yeah, yeah. So I think that I'm not sure if Nietzsche is an egalitarian in the sense that he thinks anyone can achieve the good life or not. It could be that some people just come into the world and for whatever reason, they don't have the psychological capability to live well. Maybe Nietzsche thinks that. I don't know. The Stoics certainly do not (laughs) think that. Or he probably thinks that people at least have shape themselves into people who cannot live well by a certain age. You probably think something like that. I do have one passage where it basically says that I hope people suffer because then that will give them an opportunity to endure and to basically as a necessary condition for them living well. Uh, so he says, I wish that they should not remain unfamiliar with profound self-contempt, the torture of self-mistrust, the wretchedness of the vanquished. I have no pity for them because I wish them the only thing that can prove today, whether one is worth anything or not, that one endures. Nietzsche has a much more aggressive, harsher way of wording things, but experiencing 
bad things is a necessary condition for living well is will prompt people to endure in his in his words so that's that's his view and he has the view that arguably the stoics have some people have argued that the both stoics and nietzsche are similar because they think pity is not a attitude that is justified where pity is sure. realizing that something seriously bad happened to the other another person and it wasn't their fault and also realizing that it could have happened to me martha nussbaum the classicist and philosopher argues that both nietzsche and the stoics are similar in this respect because the advanced stoic will see say someone loses their house and they're in a, they feel like they're in a terrible position the advanced stoic would say something like look if what really matters is the internals for this person so they would see they would want to treat the other person well and console them if they can but in a real sense they would not think that that person has been seriously harmed by them losing their house so in that sense Martha Nussbaum argues that the Stoics don't have pity on people. And Nietzsche also agrees. And both Nietzsche and the Stoics uh, also have this view that pity is one of the sort of key ingredients to anger and seeking revenge. You know, often we see people, we ha think something terrible has happened to them, and that prompts some desire for vengeance or seeking to punish some other party and both you know both Seneca and Nietzsche are skeptical from pity not just from the sense that they think it's is sort of whole involves false beliefs about suffering but also because these false beliefs will lead to acts of revenge or seeking to punish whoever may or may not be responsible yeah pity for the person that was harmed but then anger for the person who did the harming they kind of they're they're tied up together. That that example with the the house made me think of Epictetus's line about how the beginner will blame other people, the intermediate will blame themselves, and the advanced stoic will blame nobody. But it kind of made me think of that where, you know, maybe the maybe in the stoic view, the beginner is like, you know, somebody's house is destroyed and they're destroyed. And you think, well, you know, you should have prepared better, you should have controlled externals better. They wouldn't use that term, but that's how they would think. And they blame the person. And then, you know, maybe the intermediate stoic is like, ah, the, 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 the problem here was not the house. You couldn't control that. The problem was your response, your reaction to the house. And then the, the, the advanced stoic is just kind of doesn't pity either of these situations, just kind of accepts the situation as is and maybe attempts to, to help the other person. But again, not pity in the sense that there was a kind of a substantial harm here that, that could have could have happened to them. Really interesting, interesting way of thinking about it. I've never thought about that connection between pity and anger before. And so the idea of loving fate and the idea of happiness being self-sufficient, it is quite a stoic view if you take those two in isolation. I think the, the one difference that comes out here with that quote, and again, taking the quote out of context, maybe there's something mm -hmm. different here in the passage, but the quote about, you know, I want someone to suffer so they can have the opportunity to demonstrate their greatness. It does make me think that there is, there are, at least in the Stoic view, there are other opportunities to demonstrate greatness that don't involve hardship. Hardship is one opportunity to demonstrate greatness. You can demonstrate your courage, your temperance, your, your wisdom and things like this. But, you know, just through kindness, just through generosity, 
there's ways you can demonstrate the greatness of your character, even in times of abundance and success on the stoic view. The stoic view is that hardship can be a tool and the tool, like use it, turn it to your advantage, but it's not, it's not masochistic. It's not thinking we, we have to suffer. Otherwise we, we won't move forward. We can still move forward even if things are going well. Right. Yeah. I think that, so those are two similarities we're shouting out or yeah, those are two similarities that I wanted to mention, but I think as one goes deeper into why Nietzsche thinks what he does, some of the disagreements are going to come out. And I think what you're touching on is this first one I had in mind, which is Nietzsche's view on suffering. So on the first pass, both Nietzsche and the Stoics agree, suffering does not mean, it's not necessarily bad. It's not something that prevents one from living well. But the reasons they ultimately think that are somewhat different. So I think on Nietzsche's view, what it is to manage suffering well is to overcome it. And overcoming sort of requires this obstacle. It requires actually sort of incorporating the pain. So one line that I have from The Will to Power is in order for the creator to be, suffering is needed and much transformation. And also, you know, one must still have chaos in oneself to give birth to a dancing star. So this is sort of the view that gave rise to this image of a tortured artist almost. And I think it is a popular no notion that there are certain kinds of lives, whether it's being an activist or an artist, that are driven by a kind of suffering and integrating that suffering into your life in order to create something that's very valuable. Whereas I think what a stoic view is that suffering is no negative emotions in particular are the result or are identical to false beliefs. And by living well, one can avoid these negative emotions by avoiding false beliefs. And it's that in that way that the Stoic addresses suffering and that they live tranquilly. They're not like the tortured artist who sort of deeply integrates, you know, they're creating their art with some amount of extreme self-contempt, self-criticism, exceptional physical travails or something like this. Instead, they're trying to see things truly, which involves understanding what really matters. And part of the Stoic picture is that suffering does not really matter. So that's, that's how I put that difference. The tortured artist is always an interesting example. I remember when I was in university first learning about the Nicomachean ethics we were talking about, because Aristotle argues that everybody wants happiness. Happiness is the ultimate ends for everybody. If you ask anybody what they want, you, you, they're going to, or if you ask anybody why they're doing something, they say, well, for something else. And if you ask long enough, you keep asking why, like a five-year-old, you're going to get back to this bedrock that's just, well, because I think that's what a, I think that's what a great life is like. I think that's what happiness is like. And one of the counterexamples the professor raised was this example of the torture artist, which is to say, are there some kind of lives that we consider to be great lives or lives worth living? Or are there some kind of lives that people are aiming for that seem to be entirely disconnected from this concept of happiness? Maybe not disconnected from this concept of greatness, but disconnected from the concept of happiness. And the tortured artist is an example of this person who suffers, not only suffers to produce great work, but sees this connection between the suffering and the great work, sees the suffering as necessary for the great work. And I think you're dead on that, like, 
today, that's that's still a view we have in terms of in terms of people that are creating art, creating music or writing. It's the idea that I kind of have to have some sort of trauma to be processing or some sort of terrible experience to be having to say to, to say something about. And if I don't, I don't have anything interesting to say. I, so, so I think that's, I think one point is that that's both preserved from Nietzsche's time. I think that's still part of the kind of ethos and the way that we think about art or great artists. But I, 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 I I'm probably just so biased towards Stoicism that I also agree with the Stoic point that I don't think that that's like a, a necessary thing, right? I don't think that's a, I don't think that's the right way of of looking at it. And I would say the Nietzsche take is almost like you're bouncing off it, right? You're like you're using it as a foil to become something better. And the Stoic view is almost this kind of the obstacle becomes the way. It's almost this consumption of it, this kind of meta acceptance of it as part of the world. Not as a, not as the monster to fight, as the quote was before, mm-hmm. but as the, the something to be to be kind of accepted, to be to be let in into your conception of of the way things are, and ultimately loved in that sense. I got a bit abstract there, but but I think you did a god job explaining it. And that's that's kind of my thinking on it. Yeah, that makes sense. So I suppose that I think both both Nietzsche and the Stoics agree that in the sense of pleasure, you know, we don't strive for happiness. And it could be that the best lives are not the most pleasurable ones. So they they certainly agree on that front. But there is almost a glorification or a valorization yeah. one sees of suffering, both not in Nietzsche, but as you as you mentioned, that certain certain cultural cultural trends, I think, point point to that as well, where I think on and this is something that would be connected to some other thought from Nietzsche, but probably a number of years ago, it wouldn't be so interesting to state whatever traumas you had or mental health issues you had or were working through. But now in a more friendly, more compassionate age, those sorts of things are almost, in some cases, not always, of course, worn as a kind of badge or those sorts of things that one would talk about with abandon as opposed to thinking of it as something that is not supposed to be in any way glorified or thought well of. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm thinking also about, I mean, that's the case. And like, obviously not to say, I mean, I don't think you're saying this, but I, I obviously not, not, not to stigmatize discussions of mental illness or anything like this or trauma or hardship, but, but also, as you're saying, just to recognize that there is a kind of, there, there in one sense can be a social capital in some settings. But there can also be not just the social capital externally, but also kind of an internal meaning, right? Which is to say, you know, not only like the, this struggle, this difficulty has now given me meaning. It has it is something that I can kind of construct my sense of purpose around in response to, in fighting against. And I guess that would be kind of Nietzsche's point. Maybe would be that's the point. And that's a good thing that, you know, to overcome that demonstrates your metal, demonstrates your ability to live with the the harshness of reality and overcome it and do well in the face of that. And I, I think there's something, I think there's both harms to that if taken the wrong way, but also something inspiring to that if taken properly. Mm-hmm. But yes, different than the stoic position. Yeah. In some ways, it. I think Epictetus in the discourses, I think it's discourses three, there's this short dialogue on, you know, someone went, said, this other person went to jail. You know, what does, what should you say? It went to jail mm-hmm. and it was bad. Now, all you need to say is that he went to jail. And that's the Stoic view, this 
additional story and it was bad comes from you. Whereas the Nietzschean approach might be they went to jail and through that experience, they incorporated that experience into their life story, into their identity. They were someone who went to jail and it transformed them or they were able to integrate that experience into their that whole life. So and in that way, the, they can't, the stories can come out to be quite different. But I think the Stoic would also be fine with reframing bad experiences in, cer- in certain ways. As long as I was trying to think about like, what's the deep, deep difference here? And it might be that I think the tortured artist is made dependent on their suffering, where they feel like they cannot be an artist unless there's some amount of tragedy that they are working through, some amount of darkness, what have you. But the Stoic view is that you do, you, you can reframe, you can transform these experiences, but you are never dependent on them. And I think that is much, much more compelling picture of how to relate to suffering than this idea that overcoming is needed. But by saying overcoming is needed, you make yourself dependent on the suffering in a, in a subtle way. I mean, you, you made this point about self-sufficiency, and it's exactly what I was thinking, was that the Nietzschean point is almost one that's like not self-sufficient, not in a Stoic sense. And to be fair, the Stoics kind of stretch these ideas to their limits, right? But it's not self-sufficient. Nietzsche's thing is self-sufficient in that you don't need other people's help because you on your own can stand on this island of this thing that's you can be this incredible, you know, uber mensch with all this power on your own. But in a way, you're dependent on a foil, an enemy, something to, to craft yourself, a, a trauma to overcome, a difficulty to overcome that you, that you look great in response to. And the Stoic view is this really transcendental kind of self-sufficiency, which is, you know, you could be happy on the torture rack and you could be happy, you know, hanging out with your family. And both people are the same, they're the same amount of happy and they're the same amount of virtuous if they are that. And so the Stoic self-sufficiency point is that, is that like, yeah, I mean, just to repeat what you said, there's a way to be happy on the rack. There's a way to be happy when, it, when wow, the Stoic can say, wow, that person that's enduring torture is a great person and is having a great life because of how they're able to do that well. But, we do, but the Stoics don't only say that about those people. They also say that about the more normal sages, the more normal, you know, good people. Right, right. You don't need to let yourself go into some kind of artistic frenzy or some subconscious type frenzy in order to live well or experience some traumatic event that one needs to overcome. So do you have anything else to add on the suffering bit? No, let's hear the next one. Hi all, it's Caleb just uh, interrupting to remind you that we've just launched a new newsletter, a new newsletter, and it's called the Stoa Letter. Find it at stoaletter.com. And if you sign up within the next week and follow up to the welcome email with the words podcast or Stoic conversations, we'll send you a free PDF of an unreleased course that Michael and I have put together. Cheers. So the next difference between Nietzsche and the Stoics that I thought it would be interesting to talk about is that Nietzsche does not believe in nature in any sense. So the Stoics think it's important to live according to nature. That means live according to our human nature as one social beings and in the deeper sense live according to the cosmos, the way things are structured. But Nietzsche thinks this is nonsense. So he has a substantive passage from 
beyond good and evil i'm going i'm going to just pick out a few different bits from it so he has some lines to the effect of so you want to live according to nature oh you noble stoics what a fraud is in this phrase living isn't that wanting specifically to be something other than this nature isn't living assessing preferring being unfair being limited wanting to be different and assuming your imperative live according to nature basically amounts to live according to life well how could you not but in some fact something quite different is going on while pretending with delight to read the canon of your law in nature you want the opposite your pride wants to dictate and annex your morals and ideals onto nature you demand that it be nature according to the stoa um and then he goes on for all your love of truth you force yourself so long so persistently and with such hypnotic rigidity to have a false namely stoic view of nature that you can no longer see it in any other way and some abysmal piece of arrogance finally gives you the madhouse hope that because you know how to tyrannize yourself stoicism is self tyranny nature lets itself be tyrannized as well so you know classic nietzsche lots of yeah it's all over the place and it's always aggressive but he does have some interesting challenges here which is you know what why is it important to live according to nature you can't do anything else that's one bit that comes out of this passage the other bit is he's doing some amount of psychologizing what you mean when you say live according to nature you mean live according to these ideals that you've already decided on you mean live according to the stoa which is always a serious risk and then the last one sort of goes a little bit deeper into the psychology which is you know stoicism is almost a version of self tyranny of self rule and when we say live according to nature we're also doing this making the same kind of tyrannical move not just to ourselves but to nature as well so those are three bits that i picked out from that pack that passage does anything else stand out to you michael love that passage like the the point about arrogance you know not that it's necessarily true but i don't think the i don't think the criticism really works i don't think it's charitable to the stoic argument or really meet the stoic argument at the face of it but i think whenever we claim something talking about this genealogy at the start i think we should always be kind of plugged into our emotional you know it, it is this way of thinking about things self-serving in some sense and if it is self-serving, we can we can blind ourselves to that and we can be kind of arrogant about it. So this this idea of the Stoics are saying, well, yes, all of these great qualities, like the sage, that is the most natural person in the world, right? That is the person who has assumed their nature. There is a kind of there is a kind of irony to that when, you know, the reality seems that most people are not that, or they're naturally not that. I think I think that the idea here comes down to really decide really understanding what we mean by nature and getting confused between nature in a descriptive sense, nature in a teleological sense, and then nature in kind of a natural sense as in like a nature versus nurture kind of uh, mm -hmm. that those kind of senses. And I think if we pull those apart, the argument, we, we can save the Stoics from this argument, but at the face of it, it's a, it's a, it's a thing, it's a thing worth asking. And I'm, I'm, I'm glad that Nietzsche presses us on that. Yeah. So the first bit is, you know, you want to live according to nature. Well, you can't do anything else. So 
that's great for you because you know you're going to be guaranteed the, the good life. <laughs> Mission accomplished. Mission accomplished I'm already from the doing outset, that. right? But it it does seem that living according to nature in the descriptive sense is determined, right? You're going to do whatever is necessitated by past states of the universe if you're a determinist. That's that. There's nothing else to say about it. But that doesn't mean that you don't need to make decisions in the normative sense, decisions that align with how things ought to be. And that that seems like the, the first move to make to this to this criticism. I agree. I, I, I think when Stoics, and this confuses people a lot, with this idea of living in accordance with nature, there is there is a stoic sense of which something can be more or less according to their nature. And I, I always think of this example with like animals, for example, right? Like you can kind of, you know, if you go to an aquarium or something and you see, you know, maybe a, a dolphin that's confined in like a very small space and doesn't get to go around in the ocean, there's this sense of this kind of, you can almost, you can almost see this kind of teleological sense of nature there where it's like, well, this is not really this is not really the way you were designed to live, or this is not really the way you were designed to flourish. And there's opportunities to do well in that, but, but there's kind of a, a break here. And that's the kind of same thing that's being applied to humans. There's some contexts that are made for us to flourish and there's some contexts that aren't. But because we think of humans primarily in terms of our rational capacity, flourishing doesn't become situationally constrained. Flourishing becomes about the way that we relate to things intellectually, the way we relate to things rationally or not. But still that kind of that kind of teleological view to me is 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 a very compelling way of thinking about flourishing or living well. Certainly more compelling than whatever conception of living well Nietzsche would come up with, which might just be, you know, bravely following your desires or, you know, being willing to authentically get what you want. That doesn't seem to me to get you any closer to flourishing. That seems to me like your desires can be misplaced, your desires can be foolish. Your wants can be ultimately harmful in the way Plato talks about. You can end up tyrannizing yourself with your desires. It's ironic to me that Nietzsche talked about tyrannizing nature when I think that like there's kind of a humbleness. And he also talks about arrogance and stoicism. But stoicism to me is this kind of humbleness to say, well, I'm not, I'm not greater than human than humanity. I'm not greater than the world. I'm a piece of this. I need to humbly understand my place in this both at a human level and at a greater level. And that, that's kind of, that's, that's, that's what I think about the Stoicism thing. And I, I think Nietzsche was being uncharitable there or, or perhaps misunderstanding. Yeah, yeah, that seems right. I would say there's more of a challenge for the, you could say the paleo-Stoic view, which held that everything follows some law of providence. And mm-hmm. if you think that, then it is harder to make sense of this idea of, well, if everything happens for a reason or, you know, this, everything flows according to this arching teleology, on what grounds should we say that something is better than another? And the Stoics, of course, did have answers to that kind of challenge, but there is, I think, something quite substantive there. And you always come up with, you know, issues of, well, if nature has this teleology, how come so many things, you know, even if you can explain why they're bad, if they're not natural in the important sense, how come there are so many things like that? You know, it's this classical problem of evil that then gets applied to the stoic accounts of unnatural of God or of course also more should theistic 
accounts of God we're familiar with from the monotheistic religions. Yeah, the problem of evil, for those not familiar, is this idea where if God is all good, all knowing, all powerful, why, why, why is there bad things? Why are people evil? Why are people harmed? Why do people suffer? And so this, this, there's almost the problem of unnatural, which is that, you know, if we're living in nature and it's good to be natural, why are there so many bad things on the stoke? Why is there, why is, why are so many people vicious and unnatural? Yeah. So you kind of, you kind of turning it that way, which I, I hadn't thought of before, but it's, is, is a compelling, it's a compelling problem that he's pointing to. Yeah. Yeah. So I think many modern Stoics just do not agree that there's this overarching providence or purpose in that sort of their solution. Well, there's no problem with evil because we actually don't think that there's this sort of overarching providence to things, even though things do have as individuals say specific natures or something like that. And then, you know, one can also limit the power of things. So maybe unlike the monotheistic God, the Stoic God isn't in any real sense all powerful. It's just that there is this purpose to things that's deeply ingrained in the nature of the world. But of course, there's the question for the beliefs in providence, you know, in, in which way, it, how does providence actually get achieved where providence is and really coarsely everything happens for a reason. So yeah, there's that challenge. I think that's a, that's a good one. That's worth thinking about, especially if you take these ideas of God, a stoic God seriously, which, which I do, which I think they're worth taking seriously. I don't take like some Stoics we've talked to, like Massimo we've talked to in Stoic conversations a number of times. He just says, with confidence, there's no Stoic God. So not a problem. Moving on. Whereas I'm personally a little bit more agnostic about, about that <laughs> question. The other bit that I think is interesting from this passage is this aspect of self-tyranny. So some background on this is that Nietzsche thinks that, you know, really roughly in other parts and in his, in his early work, he sort of divided up what he called the Apollonian man and the Dionysian man or Dionysian natures. Um, I'll say that again. He divided up the Apollonian nature and the Dionysian nature. And Apollo refers to the Greek god Apollo, who in this context is the god of reason and Dionysus as uh, the god of passion, of ecstasy, of wine. So you have this classic clash between reason and the sort of uncontrolled artistic frenzy, if you will. So the Stoics are firmly on the side of Apollo. We're reasoning creatures. We want to see things as they are, though the Stoics will not make as strong as a division between these two just to life. They think that reason and emotion are very tightly bound together. So I think that's important to say, and it's a fact that a lot of people uh, overlook. But Nietzsche thinks these are quite distinct and will put the Stoics on the side of the Apollonian and thinks that when the Stoic is living out their rational life, they're sort of tyrannizing other aspects of their life and solely putting up this reasoning faculty as what determines how to live. And through that, they are downplaying, in a real sense, other aspects of themselves or forcing other parts of themselves to do what they ought to do or do what they think is true, even when they are going again, perhaps what would be better for them for, to do. Does that, does that account of how the Stoics might be involved in self-tyranny make sense? Yeah, totally. 
I mean, I see so much Plato in this, and I almost think we should do a we should do a conversation on Plato's Republic, because Plato thinks there's this divided soul between a rational part, a spirited part, and then like an appetitive part or part that has a lot of desires. And Plato in the Republic makes the argument that the, the way to have the way to be a good person is to make sure that each part of those souls is in their correct with the the rational one ruling over the other ones, but the other ones doing their thing to a, to a healthy amount. We don't want to remove them or ignore them. And Plato also talks about how you can have a tyrannical soul, which is when one of these parts gets too strong and kind of overpowers the others. It's really easy when you think of the example of the person with desire, you know, the tyrannical soul there in that case looked like someone, you know, who has some sort of addiction or pursues some sort of pleasure, even at the expense of their reputation or their family or their other long-term plans. And I kind of see, when I hear this, this Nietzsche's argument here, I imagine almost the tyranny of the rational part of the soul. So the rational part of the soul denying desire or denying the spirit and saying, oh, you know, even though you want to get revenge because someone insulted you, that's, I'm not going to listen to that part of my soul. I'm going to shove it down and say it's not rational. Or even though I, I might desire, you know, these these goods of the, you know, these kind of physical pleasures. The rational says, soul says, well, those don't really matter. Those are kind of indifference. And so on his view, I, I, I instantly kind of put it through that platonic lens and that idea of that, that rational part is now bullying those other parts and not giving them their fair due. Yeah. And I, I mean, I think that's a compelling picture from the outside. I think that's a compelling picture from, from someone on the outside looking in. If, and, it, and it is if you don't accept other arguments, right? You don't accept the arguments about, you know, what virtue looks like. You don't accept the arguments about the nature of emotion, things like this. But yeah, if, if, they, if, they, if, 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 if stoicism was going to be wrong or, or you didn't accept those other ones, that, that's, that would be what was wrong with it, is that you're giving too much importance mm -hmm. to one part of yourself and not enough to the other parts. But that requires this view that these parts are divided and separate which is something that the, the Stoics don't think. They just conceptualize it differently, right? Yeah, right. The Stoics believe the mind is unified. It's not a matter of different parts of the mind being involved in some war against all, as it were. So this issue of self-tyranny, this issue of reason versus emotion doesn't really arise as much. Um, which is a stoic answer. And, and that's, do you want to hear more about this sort of this view, in particular, how it applies to emotion? Our very first episode was on stoicism and the emotions. So if you haven't listened to that, you can go up, check that out. And we'll, we talk about why the stoics think that and what that, what that view really, really amounts to in more detail. So yeah, that was, that was Nietzsche. That was, I hope people thought that was interesting. I hope there's a good argument for why Nietzsche is a challenging character and why it is worth thinking with some of the challenges that he raises and how he gets, in my view, some things right, some things wrong. And it's, it's an exercise to figure out exactly what, what those things are. Yeah, really interesting discussion. And I, I think even if you're a fan of Stoicism, it's all, contrasting always gives you a better picture of what you're talking about. So even if you're, even if you're interested in just Stoicism, Understanding how it's different to other philosophies helps kind of really define what the Stoic position is. And that was, that was what I enjoyed about that exercise. I really welcome those kind of counter arguments because they, they helped me think more about, you know, 
what I believe about stoicism and what kind of I need to learn more about so I can be either secure in those beliefs or change my mind. Excellent. Yeah, well put. Well, that's uh, another conversation. Awesome. Thanks, Caleb. Cool. Chat soon. Thanks for listening to Stoic Conversations. If you found this conversation useful, please give us a rating on Apple, Spotify, or whatever podcast platform you use, and share it with a friend. We are just starting this podcast, so every bit of help goes a long way. And I'd like to thank Michael Levy for graciously letting us use his music. Do check out his work at ancientliar.com, and please get in touch with us at Stoa at stoameditation.com if you ever have any feedback or questions. Until next time.